Welcome to the third episode of the Future of Fusion podcast. In this episode, I sit down with my boss, Ian, and we talk about the, the alchemist nightmare and why we're trying to do it. Basically, it is the process of turning gold into lead. Back in the day, alchemy was obviously the pursuit of turning lead or different elements into gold. The alchemist nightmare is the reverse of that. Uh, don't forget to check out the YouTube channel and the YouTube video accompanying this, and enjoy. So what is The Alchemist Nightmare? So this is a project that we came up with a couple years ago. And uh, the idea was that we would do what's called the nuclear transmutation on gold. And what that means is we would change it from gold into something else. And so uh, we've been looking at different reactions that we can do, and ultimately, we thought it would be really interesting to turn gold into lead. So wait, why is it called the alchemist nightmare? So the alchemists from back in the old days, hundreds of years ago, uh, spent uh, uh, literally centuries trying to figure out a way how to convert lead into gold. Uh, because if you could do that, then you'd be extraordinarily wealthy. Because mm-hmm. uh, gold was so sought after. And they thought they could do it because lead had a very similar density. Uh, it behaved a lot like the way how gold did. It was very malleable. You know, they had very similar properties. So like, oh, this is just something we need to do, not realizing it's uh, elemental. So lead is always going to be lead unless you do a nuclear reaction to it. Gold is always going to be gold unless you do a nuclear reaction to it. So the idea was it's like, all right, well, it's like, you know, what if we go the other way? We go from gold over to lead. You know, it's like a, you know, one thing that's about uh, an exercise like that. Well, one, A, it's really funny. B, uh, it, it's also, uh, you learn a lot in the process. Uh-huh. So anytime you take on a new project, you always learn something from it. And because gold is a really heavy element, uh, doing nuclear reactions on it, it's actually very hard. Uh, so we typically do nuclear reactions on really light elements. Uh, and the reason why is the uh, lighter an element is, the less uh, protons it has in its nucleus, and they have a positive charge to them. And uh, so if you have uh, like two positive charges and you're trying to stick them together, it's like two magnets on your fridge. If you have those south poles facing each other, they repel. And so the more these positive charges you have in the nucleus of the atom, the more they're pushing away from each other. So because gold has lots of protons in its nucleus, it makes it hard to react with others because there's more positive charge. Yeah, so it's like a super magnet trying to to push everything away. it's, It's trying to repel everything. So... Uh, trying to do any type of reaction with it's hard to do. It requires extremely high energies. And uh, so we thought that that'd be interesting because we really haven't played around with really heavy uh, 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 heavy fusion reactions. And this is the type of stuff in nature you only find where you have temperatures uh, from supernova explosions. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of that, like stars never hit, even hit these kind of temperatures. They're incapable of actually doing these type of reactions. So you have to have a star blowing up to get enough energy to be able to create these reactions. So they're interesting. So you get to see, you know, a reaction in your laboratory that you normally can see with the supernova with a star (laughs) blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Okay. So like when I hear alchemist nightmare, like I I was trying to explain it to my roommate and I was like, he's like, wait, why would you do that? I was like, it's basically bragging rights among chemists. Well, yeah, that's part of it. So, well, you know, this is not a, a chemistry though. So chemistry is where you take atoms and, you stick them together through the electrons on the outside. So you make these new molecules and compounds uh, that way. 
this is actually a fusion reaction where we actually take two atoms, stick them together to make a new different atom. Oh, okay. And so the uh, we're actually changing the nucleus of the atom. So the, the atom that you started out with is no longer the same element. It's now something completely different. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things where it's like, okay, this could be really interesting to mm -hmm. go ahead and do this. And, and the thing is that some of these reactions you would see in some supernovae uh, explosions. Uh, so to actually be able to study them firsthand is definitely pretty cool. That's awesome. So uh, how did you uh, start going about trying to solve this problem? Well, the first one was uh, we were doing a lot of uh, helium fusion at the time. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that route first because that's what we had the most experience with. So if you take gold and if you hit it with a high enough energy helium atom, if you can get the temperatures up hot enough, uh, that'll form uh, thallium. And uh, that particular isotope of thallium that it forms is radioactive. Mm -hmm. And so it goes through a decay process, which turns it into mercury. And so uh, after a couple of weeks, all the thallium that you made from the gold turns into mercury. And then you can uh, turn the machine back on. You can fire helium at it again. And then that will form uh, a lead isotope. And so now you have lead. So you go from gold and you end up with lead. So this is with like two rounds or two uses of the re of the reactor, I mean, yeah. of the accelerator? Yeah, the accelerator to get it to go. And there's problems with that. One is getting the first reaction to go is really hard to do and requires extraordinarily high energies, which we did find a way to do that. But then for the second step, you just don't have that much mercury laying around. So getting from the mercury into the lead was really hard to do yeah so it's like well we could uh you know try and do it but if it's like we know we could physically do it but if you can't measure it there's no point it's yeah. like it's like yeah, we know what's going on in there but not enough where we can actually get a measurement which yeah, you is, can't necessarily prove it in yeah the way. you can't prove that we did it okay so it's like ah you know that was a bit disappointing so that it sat on the back burner actually for a long time after that so wait let me let me see so it goes from gold to thallium mm-hmm to mercury? Yeah, it decays into mercury. Okay. And then uh, once it fully decays into all mercury, then you fire helium at it again, and then that turns it into lead. Okay. Yeah. And then that, and then you're done. You got your end product, gold in the lead. It's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that one, we could do the first step. Uh, we could do the second step. The first step we'd be able to measure. We felt pretty confident we could we can get that done, no problem. But the second step, uh, there... It, the rate of reaction is just too low. Being able to measure it is just too hard to do. Background radiation would uh, not allow us the ability to actually be able to pick up and measure uh, the lead that we're creating. Okay. Yeah. So it's just the the rate of reaction would be too low to that it would it's almost negligible or difficult or almost impossible to measure. If there was so everything's radioactive. Mm -hmm. No matter where you go, everything's radioactive. One of the most radioactive things that the average person ever comes across is other human beings. Mm -hmm. And that's because we have potassium forty in our bodies. And that potassium forty is decaying right now inside all our bodies and it's emitting what's called gamma radiation, which is really powerful light waves. And uh, then in the walls and in the floors, uh, you know, where we have like the floors of the concrete it has thorium and has radium uh, and uh, excuse me, uranium. It does have some radium, too. Uh, and that's also emitting this gamma radiation, which is coming up. And so when we're trying to measure a fusion reaction, because fusion is so clean, mm -hmm. uh, 
the background radiation from too many people in the room and from stuff coming from the concrete and also from the sun up above is also bombarding us constantly with radiation. It interferes with the measurement, and we just can't see it after when with all that other radiation coming into our detectors. There's just no way to pick it up. Okay. So if there was zero background radiation, we could measure it. It wouldn't, you know, then we'd be able to measure it actually really pretty easily, even if it was really trace amounts. Uh, but because there's so much background radiation, it's it's impossible. It gets overwhelmed. Yeah. And uh, so if you have like literally a hundred times as much background radiation as you do what you're trying to measure, you're just not going to see it. So it's almost like trying to hear a specific sound when all the white noise around it sounds the exact same. Yeah, it'd be like trying to, you know. Uh, go and uh, listen to, to birds at a Metallica concert. Yeah. It probably just wouldn't work too well. The, uh, it's, there's just too much going on. So you yeah. just can't pick it up. So it's one of those things where it's like, we know we can do it. We, we can do calculations. We know that we're going to create this, but we can't show that we actually did. Yeah. And so, uh, that's at the point where we're set on the back burner and it's like, well, you know, we've, we talked about it a few times, uh, over, over the last couple of years, and uh, but just never really came up with a good solution about how we're going to be able to actually to be able to prove that we indeed turned our gold into the lead. And then, uh, uh, you know, we just uh, we had an, uh, uh, just by chance, I uh, was uh, over at a, a local university. Uh, my buddy Mark, uh, he runs the ion beam analysis lab, and uh, he's taken ownership of this uh, possession of this uh, thing called the howitzer. And what the howitzer Isn't that is like a tank. It, it is a tank. Uh, I'm not sure why they call this one in particular the howitzer, uh, but uh, that's what ASU calls it. I'm, I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I think that that's actually a name for any type of neutron source at a university. Hmm. I'm not sure what the story is on that. I'd have to look that up. But uh, basically, uh, this howitzer uh, has a plutonium 238 beryllium source in the center. So it actually has real plutonium inside this thing okay and uh so that's just some sort of isotope of plutonium yeah it's a very specific isotope of plutonium it's actually very sought after especially by nasa right now uh that's what uh, nasa uses in what are called their rtgs uh, which is radionuclide thermoelectric generators long story (laughs) short uh those are used for producing power on like uh, deep space missions like uh, cassini also like what we have on the new mars rovers Uh, that's how they provide power and heat uh, to keep this instrumentation going, especially in areas where you don't have a lot of sunlight. So that's how we got our images of Pluto, was because uh, there was one of these RTGs with plutonium-238 on board, because the amount of sunlight you get at, at Pluto's distance from the sun, uh, it looks just like every other star in the night sky yeah. at that point. So you have to have a nuclear power source in order to power those systems up. So basically, it, ASU has the same isotope of plutonium that nasa uses to power their all yeah, their stuff it's pretty, pretty awesome cool. yeah that's that's bitching so <laughs> they had this uh down there and and they were using it back in the day because ba- they built this back in 1966 oh wow and uh back then there was a lot less fear about uh radioactive materials and so you know today a lot of people at asu are freaked out that this thing's even on campus but from a scientific standpoint it's actually very useful and uh, it was interesting because back in the 60s, when ASU first built this uh, neutron source, their intention was to educate the students that were there, in particular in the engineering and the science programs. So they did all kinds of experiments. And one of the experiments they did was uh, neutron activation of silver. 
And basically what that means is if you put silver down inside this, uh, uh, in this neutron source, uh, it'll get bombarded by neutrons and it will slowly absorb those neutrons over time and it'll form radioactive isotopes of silver. So, uh, hmm. and these radioactive isotopes, they decay over time. And so you could take them out and they're fairly harmless. You talk about a very low level of radiation. But you could take these out and you could actually measure uh, that the silver is now radioactive. Uh, we uh, found out about that by accident because after Mark got ownership of the howitzer, it's like, well, let's open it up and have a look at this thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, let's see what's inside these ports and, and how it's configured. And, you know, we had the original paper, the technical paper that was published for it as well. And uh, we pulled it up and, and said one of the ports is this rack of silver quarters, pre-1965 uh, quarters, because oh, back wow. then they're 80% silver. Yeah. So we pulled this out. It's like, it's like oh, they're doing uh, neutron activation analysis. And then we found out more, and that's what they were doing with the students. And it's nice because you can actually map what's called the decay curve. So that means like, you know, after a certain amount of time, half of it will decay. And after another amount of time, another half of that will decay. And then after another amount of time, half of that will decay. So you start out, you have half, if you map it out, and then, you know, you go that half-life, then you have a quarter, then you have yeah. an eighth, a sixteenth, a thirty-second. And so you could see these decay curves. So it was a really good way for students to see firsthand uh, what radioactive decay was. Okay, and so using whatever shape of that curve can tell you what type of radioactive isotope it is it'll tell you yeah precisely what it is okay and uh because you look at what the half-life is you look for where the number of counts get cut in half and then boom that's half-life and you keep on following that down and then so you can get a very accurate measure on the half-life okay so you guys got this howitzer and you see the silver and you're like oh so they were doing this that's what they were doing yeah so it was was pretty obvious at that point so the silver had been sitting down there for decades Mm -hmm. and uh, we're not sure when the last time this was used but it was probably back in the early 80s Mm -hmm. so those silver coins hadn't seen the light of day uh since you know the reagan administration yeah so that that was interesting and then uh so it was just a quirky thing and we're showing it to some of the other uh lab technicians down there some of the grad students and we all got a got a good kick out of it uh, but then afterwards, uh, we had an epiphany because uh, 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 neutron activation is something we never considered for the alchemist nightmare experiment. And so what... Uh, when you say neutron activation, what exactly do you mean? So a neutron is a part of a nucleus of an atom mm-hmm. uh, that has no charge to it. So unlike the protons that have a positive charge, the neutron is neutral, hence yeah. the name neutron. And so uh, neutrons... Uh, uh, is a type of radiation uh, that can be created that can go right up to the nucleus of an atom. It doesn't care how many uh, protons are in the center because if it's neutral charge, it go right up next to it and it gets absorbed. Okay. And so when it gets absorbed, what'll happen is it'll change isotopes. So like, for example, with gold, if you put that in a neutron-rich environment, what'll happen is uh, gold is isotope 197. That means it has a total of 197 protons and neutrons. And gold has... Actually, let me check. He's uh, checking the periodic table we got just to the left of us here. So gold has uh, 79 protons, which means of the 197, the remainder are all neutrons. Mm -hmm. So if it soaks up another neutron, it turns into gold 198. Uh, Now, the thing that's interesting about gold is it only has one stable isotope, and that's gold 197. Gold 198 is unstable. And yeah. so uh, what it wants to do is it emits radiation. It'll go through a decay. So uh, if you put gold inside a neutron-rich environment, it will decay into mercury, 
198. Oh, wow. That was our first step uh, uh, in uh, the alchemist nightmare. And so uh, you look at this, it's like, oh, wait a minute. It's like, well, maybe there is a way that we can go ahead and do this. So just looking at this roll of silver quarters, you realize that was when the light bulb went off. Like, hey, what they were doing, we could use to achieve this. Oh, it's like, I can't believe we missed that. Yeah. yeah so it's because uh, it's one of those things, it's, it's stupidly simple. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, when you work with this stuff every day, and it's like that we didn't even come uh, draw that conclusion earlier. But uh-huh. we were so stuck on the idea of like accelerator, 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 we didn't even yeah. think about a neutron source. Okay. And uh, so, uh, uh, so that became obvious. So it's like, okay, so we can create mercury, and we can create a specific isotope of mercury called mercury-198. So uh, before what we were doing was creating thallium that decayed into uh, mercury uh, uh, 200, mercury 201. So uh, it's a different isotope of mercury, but it still puts us pretty close to where lead is. So then if we could do a fusion reaction with helium and that mercury, that'll get us up to lead. So uh, that's basically where we started working on next. And the thing that was interesting about it was uh, this actually has a lot of uses. Uh, so whereas our original plan um, was only good for enter- entertainment purposes, mm-hmm. uh, this one actually has uh, a lot of value in the medical industry. How so? So if you start up with gold-197, neutron uh-huh. activated in gold-198, and then that turns into, decays into mercury-198. Yes. If you can bombard that mercury with helium at hot enough temperatures, at those supernova temperatures, that'll form what's called lead-201. Lead-201. Yeah, so lead-201 and a neutron. And so the lead-201 is uh, unstable. It does not last. And so that lead-201 will do its own decay, uh, and it will decay into uh, the isotope called thallium-201. And thallium-201 is what's used in stress tests uh, uh, for people they inject it into you and it has its, uh, an ability to basically absorb into the heart muscles. Hmm. And so it makes imaging uh, and detection very easy. Is that used pretty commonly? In it's the medicine? second most common medical isotope in the world. Oh, wow. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's used uh, uh, quite a bit. And so the way how it's made right now is with these big, huge machines called cyclotrons, and they are extremely high-energy uh, accelerators. And so these cyclotrons, uh, uh, what they do is they produce uh, the lead 201 by a bombardment of hydrogen with thallium. And, uh, and, and that's just the common method that they use today. Uh, the techniques that we're trying to develop uh, by doing the neutron activation of the gold is actually a different route to creating that. And the difference is, instead of there only being you know, a few machines in the U.S. that, that do this, uh, there now could be hundreds and because uh, uh, the uh, thallium 201 that they use, they use in the form called thallus chloride. It's extraordinarily expensive uh, for how much that they actually inject you with. So uh, if you were to convert a gram of gold, uh, which has a current market value, I think around $40, over to thallium 201, uh, that thallium 201 for that same gram is worth around $40 billion. Oh, wow. So uh, there's and uh, that that cost just comes in through the materials that these these giant cyclotrons use and yeah. the amount of energy required. It's a, it's an insane amount, insane amount of energy. It's a very complex machine. Uh, they're very 
you know, our machines are difficult to operate. It's nothing compared to what these cyclotrons are like. So we're comparing cyclotrons to a, a particle accelerator. They're both accelerators, but they, okay. they operate differently. Okay. And uh, But they both accelerate particles. The difference is a cyclotron can get up to, a large cyclotron can hit in very, very intense energies. The temperatures they get on those is uh, incredible. And we hit, we can hit supernova temperatures too, but mm-hmm. they can hit like really awesome supernova <laughs> type temperatures. They can even go, you know, and some, some, uh, uh, I believe you can even go in excess to some degree, no pun intended. <laughs> so, so basically what you're saying is the current way of making this medical isotope thallium 201, it's only possible at these giant cyclotrons of which there are like, yeah. like three in the country or something. Well, there's only a few of them that actually make these medical isotopes because the machines are so complex and they're so powerful. There's a huge demand for their time. Yeah, and whereas particle accelerators are much more common. They're There's much, much more common, uh, and uh, you know you can find them at just about every major university in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, private enterprises that have them. In fact, we have our own coming in. Yeah, you know, so, which is uh, exciting. It's extremely exciting. So, but it goes to show you that the, the, you're going to find far more uh, particle accelerators than you are these cyclotron type mm-hmm. accelerators. So. Uh, it's one of those deals where it's like, okay, can we make a, uh, enough uh, of this lead 201 to be worthwhile where we could actually give a patient a dose of the thallium 201 and do it uh, cost effectively? And uh, so that's what we're working on now. Mm-hmm. So we haven't completed this reaction yet. So, you know, because uh, this did change the way how we were going to go about doing things. Uh, the original plan was we were going to accelerate the gold into uh, a helium target, which comes with its own set of technical difficulties. Uh, now what we need to do is accelerate uh, our mercury-198 into a helium target. And there's a big difference between uh, accelerating gold and accelerating mercury. Accelerating gold, we, we can do. We, mm-hmm. we know how to do it. Accelerating mercury, uh, it doesn't work the same. It's a lot harder to do. So uh, that's what we're basically working on now. And uh, that uh, uh, when we were playing around with that, uh, those mercury gold amalgams. Yeah. So, so just for the listener, we're going to link with this to a YouTube video of us making this attempt and uh, trying to make this amalgam. And uh, also in the YouTube, we're going to link to this podcast. Definitely listen to this before you watch that. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah. An amalgam too. It's just, it's uh, an alloy of gold and mercury. Yeah. That's all it is. And so uh, we know that we can easily get gold to do what's called ionize. And uh, that means that we can get it to uh, uh, either shed or gain electrons. And that's because uh, gold doesn't have what's called the complete electron shell. So basically the stuff that drives chemistry are the electrons outside of the nucleus. Mm -hmm. And so because there's uh, an imbalance for the way how these electrons are configured on the outside, sometimes it's not stable and it likes to create other bonds. Yeah. Uh, Gold's outermost electron shell only likes to bind with itself, which is why gold is, even though it doesn't have a full outer shell, it's really uh, 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 sticky to itself, but not with anything else. Is it, so that's why gold, when it's liquid, behaves similar to mercury, where it beads super easily. Yeah, it beads it's, up real easy. It, it, it's attracted to itself. It loves itself. Yeah, yeah. Gold only wants to be with itself. Okay. So, yeah, gold loves to masturbate. <laughs> so. It, <laughs> I was not yeah. expecting that, that. I hope you got a good, clear picture on that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, mercury 
its outer shells are complete. Mm-hmm. And so mercury uh, doesn't like to ionize like gold does. And the problem okay. is if you want to accelerate something, you need it to ionize. Yeah. So the first attempt was, and we were fairly certain it wasn't going to work, but we thought it was worth a shot, was if we did a gold-mercury amalgam, because gold does ionize so easily, maybe we just had the mercury kind of fall off and it might just you know shed some electrons in that, in, in that way. Uh, it didn't work. All we got was just the gold coming off. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, that, so that, that path isn't going to work. Uh, you know, but it was one of those things where it's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so we give it a shot and see, and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so the next step, uh, that we're trying right now is what's called the, uh, mercurous oxide, which is where, uh, we, uh, make a compound of mercury and oxygen. Uh, you have to be careful with it cause, uh, uh, it's pretty harmful to internal organs, especially your kidneys. Uh, so you got to be ex- uh, extraordinarily careful with this stuff. Yeah. But as long as you know we follow the precautions, it's not that big of a deal. The chemistry is actually a lot more dangerous than the radiation in, in most of the experiments that we do. And okay. this is w- just another example of that. So uh, the mercurous oxide does ionize, but we're looking at the numbers. We don't expect this to work either. So we're doing something with oxygen and mercury is what we you're saying? We make a uh, chemical compound of the two. So if we take mercury, we put it into a furnace uh, that has an oxygen-rich environment, and we crank it up to around 350 degrees Celsius, Yeah, uh, it will start forming uh, this uh, compound of the mercury and the oxygen. So it has one mercury atom and, and uh, uh, one oxygen atom uh, combined together, and it, and it, and it makes this powder. Then we can take that powder, put it in what's called the SNCC source, which uh, basically it's just a way of just ionizing uh, the mercury oxide to get it into the accelerator. Okay. Now, we feel pretty confident that that'll work simply because uh, if you look at the periodic table, uh, the reason why it's laid out the way how it is, any element that's in a column uh, has very similar chemical properties. Yes. So if you look at the very first group, you have hydrogen, lithium, sodium, potassium, rubidium, cesium, and francium. So those all chemically behave very, very uh, much alike. Or if you go to the other, far other side, you have uh, helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, and radon. Those all have very similar chemical properties. Are those noble gases? Yeah, those are the noble gases. See, so I they don't remember some of my chemistry. Anything. Yeah, you're doing not bad. <laughs> so uh, the idea here is, is that, that that's true for pretty much all the uh, columns that you have. Well, So for if you look where mercury is, which is uh, group 12, uh, you have zinc, cadmium, and mercury. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we know that other uh, laboratories have successfully accelerated zinc oxide and cadmium oxide. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that the uh, mercurous oxide would also behave very similarly to those two. So the reason we have faith that this might work is because there is published work to show that the other uh, two, an alloy or I guess compound, I yeah, compound, compound, very, very similar to this has been successfully made and documented yeah. and all that. Yeah, they've done it, and uh, but there's other issues with it. We need really, really high temperatures. Yeah. So we need those good supernova, you know, exploding star type temperatures. Uh, it doesn't look like we can hit those temperatures. So we feel pretty confident that we can get a beam of the mercury, uh, but the temperature is going to be too low. Okay. Because what you need to get the high temperature is a lot of ionization. We mm-hmm. need to either add on a bunch of electrons or strip a whole bunch off. And that's how we're going to get those incredibly high temperatures. So the star busting temperatures probably can't be had with the mercurous oxide, but uh, 
uh, we want to try it anyway because we uh, we've got the compound now, mm-hmm. and so let's see how well it works. Uh, if nothing else, it would just be good for a very short technical paper just so other people could see. It's like, oh, here's another option if you need yeah. to accelerate it. Uh, but uh, uh, we don't have high expectations for it. Okay. So uh, the uh, third plan, which is the one that we do expect to work, uh, is a bit more complicated. It's basically just a completely different approach to the first two. And this is the one where we have the highest confidence it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just also it's the hardest one to do. So uh, vaporizing mercury to put inside uh, an alpha truss style uh, uh, plasma chamber is a pain in the butt. And so we have to custom build a lot of pieces in order to make this happen. But we've waited so long to have an opportunity to do the alchemist nightmare. It's like we have to do it. There's no way we cannot move forward with this experiment at this point in time. Because for the first time, we're actually close enough where we can actually get this thing done. So uh, we're going to give it a shot, and uh, we, we do expect it to be able to work. We did find a uh, paper where somebody tried something similar to this with mercury, and uh, their results were excellent. Okay. So that gives us a lot of confidence in that this is, should work out really quite well. There's one more hiccup we need to overcome, and I've talked with, uh, and that's with the accelerator itself. Uh, so our accelerator is designed to first accelerate a negative charge, and then it strips the negative charges off and makes it a positive charge and then accelerate it again after that. Uh, we need to essentially shut down one half of the accelerator. We're not sure if that's possible. And if we can't do it, then the alchemist nightmare will once again elude us. Oh, man. And uh, we'll know how the uh, alchemists felt back in the day <laughs> with all their failures. So it, it's a... Uh, it's it's a tricky thing, you know. These these are not uh, this is not stuff where you can just go to a textbook, and just follow the instructions and see how this works. It's uh, it's it's very difficult to get these reactions to go, hmm. and then even if you manage to get them to go, it's uh, to be able to see them, to be able to measure them, is very hard to do. And that this one actually has implications where it actually has could have very good medical value. Uh, that makes it actually a lot more interesting because it, it's actually not just for fun, it's actually useful as well. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where we'll, we'll, we'll see, but if, uh, even if we manage to successfully ionize uh, that one next step, uh, it still just might not work with the equipment that we have. Okay. But, but it might. It might, yeah. And, uh, uh, so we're going to give it the best shot we can. This is the closest we've ever gotten to it. And that we just happened to stumble upon a solution to one of the biggest problems we had, which in, in turn came with a whole bunch of new problems. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, uh, definitely the closest we've gotten so far. If this doesn't work out, we'll figure something out eventually. <laughs> so it, it, something's got to work at some point yeah. in time. There's a lot of things you can do. We just need to... There's got to be a path in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the equipment that we have, there's, we know of ways to do this. If we went into like, you know, uh, uh, Sandia national labs and you know, it's like, Hey, you know, let's go use the big accelerators of these huge beam currents. Yeah. We can get it done in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're trying to do this with like more basic level stuff. You know, and, uh, that, I think that makes it a lot more interesting. Try and do stuff that people haven't, haven't, haven't done yet. Yeah. And a two step process is certainly a lot harder than a one, but it yeah. certainly make it interesting. And the worst case scenario, we'll turn a bunch of gold into a bunch of mercury, which is kind of cool. 
Yeah, it's end of, end of lead is the key. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well, Ian, thank you for your time. Anytime, and, Brandon. Uh, yeah. Uh, make sure you guys check out the video. We have a link to this. Basically, it shows our uh, failed attempts. Abject to, failures left and right. Yeah, <laughs> to make terrible. a gold mercury alloy. We did get it. Alloy. So just like yes. to point out, we did we did figure it out. And then when we actually tried to do the science on it, that's when it failed. Yes. Again. So science is full of failure, but that's also what makes you know science interesting. You're yes. constantly being challenged to come up with solutions. And you, it, it, when you're working on stuff that people don't really work with or haven't really done before, uh, there's always surprises along the way. So you learn from the failures as much as you do from the successes. Yeah. And sometimes the failures are really interesting. So we certainly learned a lot from that. And, uh, yeah, well, well, hopefully there's not too many more of those in the foreseeable future. We'll see. Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you again, Ian. No problem.